The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, I am honored to welcome my guest, Ms. Dina Falcone. She is a clinical herbalist, an avid gardener, and wild crafter with a strong focus on food activism and nutritional healing. She has been teaching classes about the use of herbs for food, medicine, and pleasure, including wild food foraging and cooking for over 20 years. Ms. Falcone is passionate about ecological agriculture and has completed the Permaculture Design Certificate course. She teaches workshops and events nationwide, including the Ecological Literacy Immersion Program. She is a founding member of the Northeast Herbal Association, serves on the board of Slow Food Hudson Valley in New York, and is the author of the beautiful and informative book that sits before me titled Foraging and Feasting, A Wild Field Guide and Wild Food Cookbook, illustrated by Wendy Hollander, that we are going to be diving into today. Welcome, Dina. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, I'm delighted. You know, I think during these difficult times, people are looking for alternatives. And certainly our food system has been disrupted and some bad aspects of our food system have really come into full view. And I think that foraging and learning about the foods that are at our feet or can be close by becomes much more important to understand. So your book, I Love Beauty, and your book is beautifully illustrated by Wendy Hollander. Each section, you go through the different plants that are available to us seasonally You talk to us about recipes. You talk to us about when and how to use these plants. So I'm anxious to know more about your life. Tell me, how did you become interested in wild foods and foraging? I became interested as a (laughs) preteen. So at the age of 11, I was on a quest for where foods and medicine meet. How do you deal with foods? So the seeds for my forging, the reality that I live in today really, I think, was seeded in that really young 11-year-old that wanted to make sense of the crazy world and become empowered, understand how to take care of myself, and then it grew from there. So what happened when you were 11? Well, there was a mentor in my life at that time. He had cured himself of terminal illness. He was a a local, lovely, generous man, and he inspired me. He's the one that led me on this early on. I didn't know this is what was happening. I just went to him and was like, so how do I improve my health? What do I do? Yeah. (laughs) And it became a whole food approach to eating. So set the stage, East Village, New York City, 1970, mid-70s craziness, lots of experimentation and chaos, and I think as one of my oldest friends puts it, it was a way for me to control my life. Mm. I think that probably was true. 
And I feel like that's a big part of being a forager is you feel connected to your sustenance. You have control in a sense all of a sudden when you learn to forage, your eyes begin to recognize food everywhere. All of a sudden you feel reassured. So there's something in that empowering gesture of that trajectory of looking at what power do I have to influence my life? How can I be powerful here? And I think this speaks to that, you know, this this part of my life's journey. Yeah. I think similarly, how I discovered nutrition and why I became a dietitian was along those same lines as when I realized how important it is. What we put in our bodies is what creates every cell in our bodies. And so it becomes vitally important to pay attention to what we eat and how sad it is that so much of our society really doesn't have a choice. Or maybe we are raised with this illusion of choice. But your mentor's advice to you, at least in one article I read in preparing for this interview, was don't eat anything synthetic. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I cut out preservatives, synthetic colors, flavors, just back to wholesome real food. So that was hard. You know, I was a bubble yum eating. Well, we <laughs> all were. Bodega. The bodega was on the corner. Get all the junk food. You can, as well as the ganepas, which were part of the, the bodega offerings, which are these beautiful fruits from the Caribbean. So, you know, it was a mixed story there in the East Village. There, It was full of herb stores there. It was full of ethnic food, and it was full of junk food. So I had all of that, and in a way, it was a blessing. But there's an addictive aspect to junk food, and you have to make the decision to say, nope, I'm not going to eat that, and then push it away and retrain, you know, your taste buds so that you can taste again. So that's kind of what happened early on. So at that ripe old age of 11, I said, okay, that was the last time I had like junk food. You know, I mean, isn't that a little crazy? That's many, many years ago, but that's what happened. And Mickey, that's my mentor. He was all about just whole real food. He was, and I became also in this food journey, a strict vegetarian. And then I became a vegan and he had been a vegan pretty much through the end of his life, but somewhat. Anyway, so there's a few, a lot of thoughts come up right now, but one is that we each have to find our way, but the idea that whole real food sits at the center of the table is right on for me. Veganism was not, and even vegetarianism for me became not a good endpoint. So the journey keeps unraveling, and the idea is, you know, what's wholesome for your body, for your lifestyle, what you need and but yet the premise still stays in that like push away the food industry push away the synthetics that's for sure and then probably another big piece that he shared even though it was mixed up was like you're not eating white sugar anymore you're not eating refined food so that was another big piece no more refined flour refined sugar that got pushed away I love that you talk about how you shifted from eating junk food to moving to whole foods. And your book has a section where you talk about, okay, these are the foraged foods, and you go into a big explanation of, with beautiful charts, easy to understand, and recipes. But what I also like about your book is how you describe what those other foods are. And ultimately, what is wholesome and good for us is also good for the planet. So you talk about, yeah, you eat meat now, so do I. But it's not going to be from the industrial system, which is, talk about food activism. Rejecting that industrial system is protecting not only our environment, but the poor, exploited people that work in that system, too. So 
there are better foods out there. And I think you outlined that very well for us. But let's get back to foraging. You talk about being a wild crafter. Can you tell me, help me understand what some of these definitions are? What is a wild crafter? It's a fancy word for foraging. Okay. <laughs> basically somebody who crafts from the wild. So a forager is someone who goes and forages for wild food, wild medicine. It could even be for craft material. You go foraging in the wild. Wild crafting is basically learning to craft from the wild food, medicine, and craft, you know, like basket making and so on. So wild crafting, but typically it's used for medicine makers. So a lot of times we talk when we're wild crafting, we're really, herbalists will say that usually in relation to making herbal medicine, let's go wild craft from St. John's work or some plantain or whatever it is. So yeah, wild crafting is more an herbalist term. Herbalists are usually involved with medicine making. Mm -hmm. Okay, so there are lots of plants out there, many of which we walk on. Unfortunately, many of them are not socially desirable, let's say. So I live in a town that has my house is on a on a lawn. Well, the lawn is being slowly transitioned to mostly native native plants. But I have neighbors who really like their monoculture lawns. And the truck comes out with their chemicals. And I'm seeing all of these beneficial plants in the pages of your book and recognizing that most of my neighbors, or many of them anyway, probably don't want dandelions or purslane messing up with their monoculture lawn. How do you help people shift from that mindset of poisoning plants that could be healing our bodies how do you get them away from this desire to have this quote-unquote perfect lawn? That's a huge topic and a huge inspiration for me is to try to get people to fall in love with the plants that they're killing. And that is the theme of foraging and feasting. Like you said, you're spotting the plants that are being killed. Billions of dollars are being used to eradicate plants that are actually our food and medicine that grow, like you said, right in the lawn. So a big way is through making these plants you know, I've worked with an illustrator to create these plant pages that are seductive so that people fall in love with the plant and see its beauty rather than looking at it as something that's a problem or a, a pest or a weed. So it's a mind shift that we want to bring up. It's like just holding them up and making them acknowledge the beauty. And then all of a sudden when your dandelion blooms, you think, oh my God, that's gorgeous. Thanks for coming. You know what I'm saying? Rather than let me kill you. But so it's a visual seduction that's part of creating foraging and feasting plant pages. For example, we have the dandelion as a fine art print you can buy and hang in your living room. We have it as a poster. So you're exactly speaking to the theme of foraging and feasting. It's how do we create a cultural revolution to look at plants differently and understand that they're not only beautiful, but then they serve food and medicine function, and dandelion being one of the most nutrient-dense leafy greens that we have on the planet, it's really ironic or insane to think that we're killing them. And so not only are they food and nutrient-dense, but they actually have really strong therapeutic properties that almost everyone on the planet could benefit from. So again, what irony is that? What craziness is that? So actually, <laughs> a big theme in the upcoming online course that we're releasing is the dandelion and, and I go deep into the dandelion because I do love it so much and it's food and medicine but it speaks to your point like you're stepping on it you're killing it and so let's 
reframe the conversation. Look at what's growing at your feet. Look at what's growing at your fingertips or in your ecosystem. Begin to peel away the green wall, or peel away is the right word, but like differentiate what's in that green wall that you most people just ignore or can't see and start to honor all of the different plant beings that are there and learning how we can use them for food and medicine. And just as you say, a lot of people may have difficulty with food access or even supporting their body's health, and it's not hard. Once you lift the veil so that you can see what's there, all of a sudden this world opens up of powerful food and medicine. Mm. I wish more of our medical community embraced this idea. And I'm thinking as you're speaking about a cancer group of doctors that work in a traditional building, medical building. And sometimes I ride my bike by their building and I see this expansive monoculture lawn. Sometimes I can smell the pesticides that have been applied to maintain that nonsense. And I think, what could be here? What could be here is an herbal garden a true healing garden, not only for the patients that have to go there, but also to serve as a source of education for, you know, these plants can help maybe your digestion or your immunity. And I think that as we do look towards what could a new society look like post-COVID-19, I think that these are the kinds of ideas that I hope to plant. You know, these are the seeds that I hope to plant through my interview with you. So, Thank you for that. We are halfway through, so I need to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are joined by Ms. Dina Falcone, clinical herbalist, avid gardener, wild crafter, and she is the author of a beautiful book titled Foraging and Feasting, a Field Guide and Wild Food Cookbook, illustrated by Wendy Hollander. This could be like in your kitchen as a cookbook. It could be a field guide that you take out in the woods. It could also be a coffee table book because it is absolutely visually so incredibly beautiful. I want to get back to the dandelion, though, for a moment, because the thing about the dandelion is, okay, it's it's one of the first foods for bees, which is why I think it's so important for our pollinators that we protect it. It's also a bitter plant, and I think that bitters have... You know, we tend to favor sweet foods. It's my understanding that even breast milk is sweet. So we know biologically that sweet foods tend to be safe and bitter foods oftentimes deliver toxins. And so it's a natural aversion biologically, but some bitter foods are actually beneficial. Can you talk to that idea of bitter foods and the benefits of them? Sure. Absolutely. And this is another... As I continue on my food experiments, I've pushed away the sweet flavor pretty intensely. So not only refined sweeteners, but honey and maple syrup and things like that, which we also make maple on the property here. So we, But anyway, the point is, if you actually push away the sweet flavor, which is even things like sweet potato and starches, I mean, I know that's sounding extreme, but those are sweet, even rice is sweet. So what happens when I do that, when I say, okay, I'm not going to be eating a starchy menu, I'm going to go with the leafy greens. Bitters change on the tongue. It's a real personal experience I've been having for like the last three to four years, where like when you say no to a high starch food, you're actually reducing what turns into sugar on your tongue and in your blood. And when you eat something that's bitter, you actually don't taste the bitterness. That sounds crazy, right? But it's 
true. <laughs> so all of a sudden, the dandelion does not taste bitter to me. I mean, it's very, very slightly bitter. But when I'm eating, let's say, lots of brown rice and putting honey and maple syrup in my food, a lot of that, and I eat a, a dandelion leaf, it will be extremely bitter. So I say all of this just, again, to frame the question of bitter flavor and your question, who's eating it and is it tasting bitter to whom? Because here we overeat, I think, again, as a food reflection, we're consuming so much of foods that turn to sugar in our bodies and then it skews our taste buds so that anything bitter feels way out of range. Whereas, so like I just said, I can, I can be eating bitters right now and they do not taste bitter. And I know because I was a heavy maple syrup date eating vegetarian, you know what I'm saying? Lots mm-hmm. of oatmeal and raisins, pure sugar that that's giving me. I push that away. I eat more animal kingdom, more leafy greens, more nuts and seeds. And when I eat a bitter leaf, it's not bitter. What? That's crazy. So part of what we feel, I think, on our taste buds is a reflection of what we're eating as a culture. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So that's a whole big conversation. But then going back to your question of what does the bitter flavor do, and it's a digestive stimulant, so it will help your body to digest food and increases pancreatic secretions or bile secretions, you know, you're getting all your juices flowing by that bitter flavor. So it helps you to actually get the nutrients from the food that you eat. So that's an amazing thing. It helps with bowel movement. That bitter flavor in the right dose within the right context stimulates digestion in a really beautiful and gentle way. Mm -hmm. But I should say that part of the theme of eating the dandelion, of doing the online, it's called Wild Food Health Boosters and Herbal Remedies. This is the new online course that we're about to share. But in that, I share with you how to prepare the dandelion leaves so that they actually are palatable for those that are still eating quite a bit of sweet stuff. And they just taste amazing and delicious. And it's to put enough good fatty, like an olive oil with a little bit of of garlic and different nuts, and you drizzle that on and it softens the bitterness. You put enough salt in. So think about the Mediterranean countries that might be eating more bitters, like in Italy, and they're putting good olive oil, some sort of acid on there, like a lemon or vinegar, good amount of salt. And all of a sudden, that also transforms that leaf so that your tongue is still going to taste with some bitter, but it begins to taste delicious. Right. And, and that's part of what I'm always trying to turn people on to is like deliciousness of these foods that we're stepping on, that we're killing. That, you know, you brought up that hospital and it's ironic again. It's a cancer center, but they're putting cancer into the soil there. You know, they're putting carcinogens into the earth. The whole thing is just huge. You know, everything is off filter. Yeah. <laughs> like, what? Yeah. So we can encourage that lawn that you were just describing that's by the cancer center to let its dandelions bloom so that the bees can make honey, but that so humans can also go and forage for those dandelions and have this amazing nutrient-dense food that actually stimulates digestive health at the same time as giving you high calcium intake, magnesium, potassium, and so on. Right. There are many opportunities to change our food system and environment and looking towards native plants that are both edible and beautiful, I think is a great approach. There are so many pages of plants and you describe their benefits. One of the challenges that I've found as a dietitian, you know, what are my resources in looking mm. up nutrient contents of these plants? And we have typically relied on USDA to 
for example, you want to find plants or vegetables that are high in potassium or high in magnesium, you'd go to the USDA nutrient database and you'd look and see what are those food sources that I'm going to recommend to my patients. And it's been challenging for me to find really good nutrient analyses of wild foods. Tell me about some of your sources. Your point is really excellent. And I also have a hard time, but I look through a lot of old herbals. Mm. There's a book called Nutritional Herbology, and it's an old book, and it has charts on nutritional data. I use that a lot. But it's by zero moisture basis, so you have to recalculate. So you have to make sure you're understanding what the chart is referring to because you're going to be eating a plant fresh, so it's not going to be the same as that chart. But I look at that as a reference. I'm trying to remember, there are, if you go online, there are some of these. There's also, I believe, in the Chronometer, which is an app for dietitians, in there you can access certain, they'll give you nutrient content for certain raw foods, so it's not in the USDA as much as it is in another aspect of the U. You know, I'm not having those the clarity around the names, but in Chronometer you will find some of the wild plants mentioned, nutritional herbology, but the real deal too is, but there isn't any incentive for testing these right. because no one's going to be making money. Mm-hmm. But also, we need to get some grad students on board to do this testing, and it'd be awesome. But the other thing, too, is there's variation based on where the plant is growing. Absolutely. So these things, I'm a chart reader. I love to look at nutrient levels in foods. That's what I was doing since 11, reading, understanding that. That was what it made me feel powerful. Oh, I see there's so much iron in here. But is it bioavailable? That's a whole other question. Oh, so yeah. So is it bioavailable? But then also in terms of putting down an actual number for a particular food, that food will change based on the rain, based on the soil, based on X, Y, and Z. So it's also difficult. But at the same time, maybe we do have reference numbers. But when you start to research this, you can see that like the hardy kiwi, can have vitamin C content in one chart that's 20 times greater in another chart. So what's all that about? Exactly. So charts have their limits. Let me just add one more thing before I forget. But the plants that I'm really asking for folks to pay attention to and get excited by aren't really native. They're actually what are called invasive or Mm. they're aliens, quote. They're plants that arrived here, like the dandelion is from Eurasia. It's not from the United States. So it has become a naturalized plant, and that's exciting. So not to think you need to put natives in. You're not looking for natives only. You're looking for beneficial anybody who are arriving, that are there, that are easy, that grow on their own. You know what I mean? You're not having to weed around them or water them. They do their thing. Why would you not benefit from that? Because it's not, quote, native. So that's just another thing for... In your language, you kept referring to native plants, and what I feature is naturalized plants, both that are native and non-native. I love that. I love that you brought that up, because what I am seeing is, well, there is an encouragement to have native species, and I understand the link between being able to feed and nourish the whole chain of, say, insects, birds, other animals in the ecosystem that depend on, say, one species even. And if we get rid of that species, I can understand the threat of invasives. But at the same time, wouldn't it be better to be able to find a way to put those invasives on our plate as opposed to 
poisoning them, which is the traditional way of dealing with them. Exactly. That's exactly right. And what you do as a forager is you learn how plants behave in your ecosystem and you want the biodiversity. So you are going to protect those plants that are endangered, that aren't very prolific or are, they're having a hard time. So that's part of my job. I bring those plants and I want them to proliferate. And those invasives, I want to control to my needs within my landscape. And they give the gift often of food and of medicine. And the endangered, we're not picking them. We're not foraging for them. We're encouraging them because we want habitat diversity. But as a forager, that's our job. You know, we learn that we have to protect those, we encourage those, and then we bring into our lives these that are so abundant. And if you look at the dandelion, it's also feeding and caring, like for the bees, as, as an example. So as an invasive, it's also incredibly beneficial for so much of the ecosystem health. So yeah. don't forget that. But I am of that mind, like, yes, the garlic mustard, which I love in recipes, and I just love it too as a being, but I do need to control it because I want my golden seal patch to thrive, and I don't want this invasive to choke it out. So that's where, excuse me, you can't live there right now. You're going to be, the garlic mustard is going to be salad. It's getting moved out of there. So that's the game in this mindset, is you become a co-creator with the ecosystem, and you help to create biodiversity through your action of being a forager. So in that monocrop, in that mono lawn of the hospital, that becomes an enchanted world of a hundred different species of plants, some that arrive on their own, some that you bring in because you love or you want them for whatever reason. You bring in those endangered ones so people can learn what they look like and they can bring some into their home landscape. So that's the idea is plant literacy and ecosystem literacy and then for me, it all ties into our well-being on the planet. Mm. And, our, and our well-being isn't just limited to what we put inside of our mouths, which is what I love to think. But the truth is it's what we put inside of our eyes, you know, what we see, what beauty we see, mm. how we relate to the world. So it's that change, too, where all of a sudden Earth is offering these gifts up and it's like, oh, my God, it's so abundant. I mean, that fills your heart. There's a richness in that that I think the, the emotional or psychic body is more powerful, perhaps, than what we put in our mouths. As much as I like to think that what I eat is going to make me the healthiest as possible, it could be the thoughts that might be even more influential. You know what I mean? It's like absolutely a lot in there. Yeah. Yeah. I heard a very influential nutritionist say one time, we are what we eat and what we think. And being surrounded mm. with beauty is so mm. important, especially in trying times. Dina, we are out of time. And I would love to have you back because there are so many more topics I want to talk about, identifying toxins and just more mm -hmm. about the whole art that you have created here with this book. But I'm going to have to close. We have been speaking with Ms. Dina Falcone. She is the author of the book that sparked this whole conversation titled Foraging and Feasting, A Field Guide and Wild Food Cookbook. It's illustrated beautifully by Wendy Hollander. And that's another whole story about how you connected. But I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, of course, I want to thank my guest, Ms. Dina Falcone. And if you want to see her book and learn more about her beautiful work, 
www.foragingandfeasting.com as well as a video series that you can see and she's got short videos where you can learn a lot about her art and craft www.inthewild.kitchen thank you so much for being my guest I would love to have you back thank you it's been a pleasure thank you so much Melinda thank you